Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan talks with Susie Grogan about shell shock. In my own research for the Wellcome Trust, I analysed the history of this largely unrecognised, hard-to-diagnose illness that before the First World War was known as, well, perhaps nostalgia or cannonball wind, but in Susie's work she goes much deeper and takes us on a history of this largely hidden illness. Today, we might better know some aspects of it as PTSD, but its definition has changed over time. And so Dan and Susie talk about those who were afflicted and really affected when they came back home from the battlefield, how there are gendered aspects to the impact of war trauma, but also about how this has been an enduring and persistent issue of warfare from the First World War across the Second World War into the Cold War and through to the 21st century. Because there's one thing that's a guarantee about war, and that's that it's going to have a massive, disproportionate impact on the human psyche. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I mean, I could not be more interested in the subject, and from what you've studied and looked at, just how widespread was occurrences of mental psychological trauma as a result of being in battle in the First World War? Well, I I looked at it from two different perspectives in a way, because I was very, very interested in the personal stories. And there were lots of battlefield historians writing about the battles themselves. And it was the people and the lives they led and the effect the battles had on them that was the part that interested me. And I was really surprised because there are official figures, aren't there? And I know you covered this a a bit in your your recent programme. There are official figures and there are figures that have been estimated since as to the real number of people that were seriously affected by the trauma of war. I know the sort of official figures were sort of around about 80,000 men actually diagnosed with shell shock or also, as they called it, war neuroses or neurasthenia. Work that's been done by researchers such as Jay Winter, for example, have estimated that because that was really only those men who were identified as having experienced that 
very close to the 1914-1918 period. When you look at those that broke down later and well on into the 1930s, the figure he estimates is much nearer to half a million. And that doesn't include the civilians, of course, that were also traumatised by what was happening on the home front. So it had a huge impact on society and on local communities, as well as the national picture. So this is the interesting thing. I just keep coming across, whether it's in cemeteries, whether it's in archives, whether it's in family stories, reports of First World War veterans who committed suicide, fairly obviously attributable to some very significant psychiatric trauma that they'd, they'd experienced during the First World War, but 15, 20 years after the war, and, and that also might inj- a story that might involve heavy drinking and violence towards their loved ones as well. So how can we one day build a true figure of, of, the, of the human cost of the First World War, just, just in, in this one particular area? I think that's really difficult, but what I was heartened by was, and, and I always recommend people if I do talks on the subject, is that if you look in the newspaper archives and you read the snippets of perhaps only a a short paragraph, you can sense that there were so many individual lives that were affected, whether it was something as serious. I I was inspired by what my great uncle did, which was nobody knew in my family. They kept it very secret. And I think that's a real problem, too, is that, you know, we'll never get the true figure because people were reluctant to talk about it. And certainly in my family, my great uncle had killed his girlfriend and then turned the knife on himself and cut his own throat. And it turned out it was as a result of a, of being involved in one of the first air raids. He was actually a soldier, but in a works regiment, and he'd seen the results of the first air raids. And so actually we can look at men who were traumatised in battle and we can estimate the numbers that perhaps were physically as well as emotionally traumatised. So, you know, it's for a long time been separated, this physical and mental disability. But actually, a lot of those men who were physically, physically wounded and in in terrible ways were also mentally traumatised. And so if you can ask the question, I think, how will we ever get a true picture? But there are so many facets to it. and, And as you say, men still taking their lives into the 1930s and up to the Second World War, when, of course, it was still evident in the Second World War, that the true cost, I think, will always be something of a mystery. And and I, I like the way Jay Winter has worked these things through and estimated this half a million figure. That's in the UK alone. That's not a worldwide figure. That's the idea that half a million people, half a million men, service personnel, were affected by war trauma. And I mean, and now we know it's one of the biggest undeclared public health emergencies in in history. I mean, just these hundreds of thousands of men struggling with appalling wounds, mental wounds, uh, and receiving virtually no treatment for it at all. Self-medicating probably often with with alcohol, I imagine. Yes, and those it resonated so strongly between the the Great War and today, and I've spoken to so many service personnel, as I, I know you did for your programme, and the symptoms they describe and the difficulties they actually have to deal with when they come back from a war situation, an actual conflict, even a peacekeeping mission, the things they've seen, the ways they've been trained then, as they are even more so now, to that fine pitch of battle alertness, 
means that it's very difficult for men and women, of course, to come back into society and to have their needs recognised. And obviously the culture is still one, even after all this time, of there being a stigma against coming out. And the worry for me was when I was reading about the Great War was the effect of the British heroic ideal, this stiff upper lip, and the problems that, that that can lead to for those who want to talk to someone about it, but feel that there's a barrier and that they'll be judged. And they certainly were judged in the Great War. It is better now, but there is certainly still far too little support for those who are coming back and need to be properly debriefed and properly supported. And, you know, I'd love, of course, we all would love to be able to talk more to those who were directly involved. But there's been some wonderful oral history done more recently to, you know, talking to the children, the grandchildren of those who were there. And we learn a lot about, you know, maybe I've had people come up to me after my talks on Shellshock Britain about how listening to what they'd gone through explained a lot of their behaviour and and I was keen that we looked back with a bit more compassion, that we felt some kind of involvement in what they'd gone through rather than seeing it as something that was quite alien to us, you know, someone with a gun in their hand having to deal with uh, endless shell fire and then long periods where nothing happened and you know the anxiety yourself that can build up when, you know, you're anticipating something. They were at a pitch of anticipation, of fear, of nerves that was going to lead to physical and emotional problems when they left. And yes, alcohol, self-medication, relationship breakdown, which is still, you know, very prevalent now, leading perhaps even to uh, homelessness. And we know the populations of veterans in the prison service and on the streets is higher than you would, you know, the general population that you'd expect it to be. And that was the same 100 years ago. It kind of feels like we didn't learn very much. And you would rather hope that after this four years of commemoration, which was something I'm very keen to keep alive, is that we don't do what happened between the previous two wars. We actually learn from those experiences and try and find a way to better support the men and women coming back from conflict situations today. I was reading an account the other day of the ship transporting infantrymen in the, in the war of Spanish succession, and it was horrifying. I mean, there were just people dying all over the place. There was violence, sexual assault. There were people, they were trapped in storms. Ships were sinking. I mean, it was traumatic, right? So do we think that there has always been long-lasting mental trauma as a result of the situations that human beings, particularly in wartime, have been placed in? Or do we think there was something unique about this monstrous industrial war, this death at long range, the, the inability to relax because at any moment a shell or a sniper could, could fell you? It, it, was there something unique about the First World War? Well, I mean, not unique in the sense that there were definitely descriptions from thousands of years ago of similar responses to the traumatic experiences of war. I mean, certainly Shakespeare, too, mentioned it. I mean, Henry IV, there is a description of Hotspur having a dream that is literally a description of him experiencing shell shock and the war trauma. And 
certainly in the American Civil War, they called it different things. They called it DeCosta syndrome or they it was something to do with what they thought was a heart issue. But even so, even, you know, something completely unrelated to war itself, there is evidence in, in the Victorian period of when railway accidents were becoming something that was causing public concern, there was real worries that there would be insurance claims because people were suffering very similar symptoms to those that the men suffered in the First World War. The unique thing about the First World War was the numbers. It caught everybody by surprise. They simply weren't ready. And even regular soldiers who had been part of the army and trained well before the war broke out, even they, right at the beginning, you know, the, the retreat from Mons, and there were men breaking down right from the word go. And although it took a while, it certainly became something that they eventually recognised was part of this far more mechanised war that they hadn't anticipated at all. More from Susie Grogan in a second, everybody, at History Hit TV. You can listen to all of these podcasts ad-free. You can watch hours and hours of wonderful history documentaries if you go to History Hit TV. If you use the code POD4, P-O-D-4, exclusive to podcast listeners, you can get 30 days free and then the first four months for just one pound, euro or dollar per month. That offer is ending very soon. I urge you to take advantage of it because no more Mr Nice Guy. Anyway, back to Susie Grogan. So we, but we should imagine that the streets of London and Manchester and Glasgow would have been choked with very severely psychiatrically affected veterans after the Napoleonic Wars as well, you think? Yes. The issue, I think, is that for the first time, probably after the, during and after the Great War, there started to be a language associated with what was being experienced. And before that, people, I mean, now we're coming to a certain amount of understanding about what it means to have PTSD, combat stress, the symptoms, there's a language around it. But for so many people in those wars, you know, in previous centuries, there was no language to explain what they were going through. They couldn't express themselves to their families. Their families didn't understand. The only people they could talk to about it might have been the people who had experienced it with them, but often that would be to somehow show a loss of face. So it isn't until we recognise that these kind of things can affect anybody, which they did recognise on the continent, incidentally. I mean, France and Germany, and particularly France, I think, had long since recognised that these symptoms that men had, they knew that men themselves could suffer from these what were labelled hysterical symptoms, whereas in Britain, those symptoms had been attributed largely to women. And so it was seen to be very unmanly indeed to lose the ability to speak or lose the ability to use your limbs. It was seen as something hysterical, whereas abroad they recognised that that was perfectly possible for men to have the same thing happen to them. So, yes, and I think it was very difficult for people with psychological damage to come back and to, to work their way back into a society that didn't understand them and had far more respect for those with physical injuries. If an injury could be seen, they were seen as somehow heroic. They'd done their bit. But if they'd come back with something psychological, it was very difficult for them to, to fit back into society and to be part of that whole war effort to feel at the end of the war that they'd made and played their part in it. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. 
Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. What are particular kinds of injuries? I mean, I've read about burials. You know, It seems that shells that blew people up and then buried people alive and then they were then dug out by the mates. Burials often seemed to trigger a instantaneous psychiatric uh, response. In your research, what what are the sort of injuries, what are the sort of experiences that are, are triggering, or could it be anything? Well, it it could be the fact that somebody had had an experience of nothing for a very long period of time, or that they'd had injuries to friends often triggered something. If they lost a friend, they lost a close friend next to them. But there were some terrible things I read that obviously, you know, they feed into our darkest fears, don't they? That fear of being buried alive has been with us for all time. It's a it's a human response. So digging the tunnels, being the people who saw those tunnels cave in and then being responsible for getting the people out of them. That was horrible. And people being buried with We've got to remember there were corpses everywhere at certain periods of the war. If it wasn't men, it was horses, it was rats. They were living in a situation that not even the most impoverished person back home would have understood. And a lot of it was building up those instant moments when the the tunnel caves in on you. Something you can attribute it to, yes, being, you know, your trench being hit directly by a shell. Those were easier. The other ones were those ones which were the constant stress, the constant tension that we know can happen to people nowadays, even though they don't recognise it. There's a build-up of all those chemicals in your body, which really do keep you at that heightened pitch that makes it very difficult then to switch back off again. And I think a lot of the people who come back from Afghanistan, for example, and the Falklands, they find it very difficult to switch back from that battle mode back into something that resembles normal society. And when I was doing my work, research on the book, it was interesting to think that, you know, most of the time society expected these men to come, largely men, although there are uh, there is work being done now on the lasting trauma for the women who were involved in nursing the men. Society does have to work towards 
helping those people to come back into a society. We shouldn't just expect them to slip back into something when actually for them, their world is irrevocably changed. There's no way that they can just slip back into normality. And all the time, I know some people have, you know, when I've been doing talks on, on Shellshock Britain, they've said, well, look, lots of men came back perfectly all right. They said it was the making of them. And I think that's where another difficulty lies, is that, yes, you cannot deny that some men came back and had seen the war as a great adventure, and that there are many young men now and young women now whose lives are made very much better by being part of the armed forces. But that's not to decry the, the fact that so many of them, and it, and it is hundreds of thousands, left a legacy for their families too. And, you know, and nowadays it's exactly the same. The family took on a lot of the burden. The family had to adapt. Many, after the Great War, many young women, for example, changed their plans because they were helping their mother with perhaps a damaged father or, you know, a, a young fiancé had been seriously injured. And women took on a lot of the caring roles and it was very stressful for them too. And we have to remember that again now. So much of this reflects 100 years on that I don't think we can, as I think is happening a little, think that the four years commemorative period just simply ended in November 2018 because for so many people the war went on for decades afterwards. So obviously there were terrible examples during the war of shell-shocked people, young men who were clearly, well, as far as it's possible to ascertain, they seemed to be suffering shell-shock and they were executed for things like cowardice and desertion. Very few people, but that did happen. What about the other end of the scale where actually you know, medical science did respond. I mean, because actually there's a big story in the First World War about how some medical officers, some commanding officers, realised that this was real and needed to be treated just like a, a physical ailment. Tell me about some of the treatment. The issue with treatment was that it was very class-based, but yes, there were really good doctors that, that actually understood that this wasn't percussive. They, the, the, the initial thought was it, was it was percussive in that you would needed to have been in proximity to a shell um, for it to have actually physically damaged your brain. And it was only when really good doctors like Mott and Rivers understood about the fact that those other pressures, those long periods with nothing to do, the constant ball bombardment, the mechanised nature of the war was having a proper psychological effect on the brain. And... You know, it, it, you look back on it and you can think, yes, we, the wonderful work that the novels of the, of the Regeneration Trilogy by Pat Barker and the treatment at Craig Lockhart in Scotland, um, where William Rivers was all about talking therapies, his patients were largely the officer classes. And the officer classes were often sent to rather lovely places, they had a, a much more benign approach to their recovery or their non-recovery, because many of them didn't recover, but they generally had a, a more benign treatment. But then there's also Lewis Yelland at the Queen's Hospital in London, who we see in the regeneration books and films as using faradization or the electric shock treatment, and that was largely used on the ranks. Um, you know, they'd put electrodes on a man's tongue if he couldn't speak until he yelled out and then he'd be sent into another room and shouted at by a sergeant major for letting his mates down. It's not quite so cut and dried as that. And the trouble with finding out a lot about what happened during the Great War is that, of course, there wasn't the follow up there is now. 
Arthur Hurst at Sealhane, for example, was really working on the basis of what we would now call ecotherapy, which is getting men out into and working on the land with animals in peaceful surroundings. And although he used the other techniques as well, and also one that was sort of based on hypnosis and perhaps not being entirely honest with the patient, but if the result was good, that was what was important. Apart from being class-based, there was little they could do in terms of talking therapies until there was a real commitment socially to coming to an understanding of what it meant to have this long-term war neurosis. Because yes, it was great to be able to talk about it, but you had to be in an, an environment where you were supported if your nightmares were so terrible and you were being encouraged to talk about them, you had to be supported. And actually out in the wider community, there was still very little support. Psychotherapy was getting cool, sort of like cool and hip in the 1920s. And middle class parties were always talking about the latest ways of going to psychoanalysis. But it wasn't something that was directly helping the young men who were coming back from the Great War. It was something sort of like a bit of a middle class party kind of Thing that you, you really did need to have the country to buy into that idea of talking therapy as being the best way forward. Well, Susie, thank you so much. Tell us the name of your book. It's called Shellshock Britain, The First World War's Legacy for Britain's Mental Health. It's such a wide subject and it's, it's so fascinating. It really is a fascinating story to think about how widely the country was affected by the trauma. And it wasn't just the men, it was the the women, the children, the people at home, all suffering in their own different ways. Well, that's right. You know, million, millions of us alive today will have had a parent or a grandparent who were directly traumatised in, in the First World War. Well, yes, even even if you were waiting to hear from your loved one, that every time the postman's knock on the door, you never knew whether it was going to be good or bad news. So I can't imagine how we do it now. We seem quite feeble in response to emergencies. I do wonder how we'd manage and because, of course, there was Spanish flu at the end of the Great War as well. And, and you know, you, you think how we go now with Ebola. I mean, you would think 200,000 people just dying like that. I think it takes a it was a strong country then, but it was one that was still needing an awful lot of support. Well, let's hope we never find out how our generation will be tested. That's all I can say. Thank you, Susie, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dan.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it 7 miles inland. Further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com/forward/slash/subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code Warfare to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code Warfare to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.